Many of us are familiar with the account of Jesus' so-called triumphal entry into Jerusalem, one of the few stories told by all four Gospels. But was it the simple, humble donkey ride into the city that it is often portrayed to be? Or was it specifically designed to be much more? A prearranged coronation ceremony orchestrated by Jesus to portray himself as the promised King of Israel in fulfillment of both royal and prophetic tradition. Our host, Bill Petrie, looks at the coronation of Jesus the Christ. Matthew chapter 21 verses 1 through 11 state, And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethpage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, the Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went, and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments, garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees, and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before, and that followed, cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. We do not have kings in the United States of America. In fact, this country was established out of an anti-king revolution. As a result of this fact, we who live in the United States know very little of the pomp and majesty and ceremony that attends a coronation. Perhaps the closest we have ever come to that kind of thing is watching the British coronation of King Charles III this past week on television. But as far as our hands-on experience with monarchy and ceremony and coronation, it is foreign to us. But in Matthew, we find a coronation, as truly a coronation as any coronation ever was. For this is truly a king. And he is affirmed as a king, and he is inaugurated into his kingship, in a sense, in this very passage. But as little as we know about coronations, we know enough to know that this is not like any of the ones that we have ever been exposed to. 
It is not like the coronation we just witnessed on television. When have we ever seen a king riding on a donkey's colt with people throwing branches and old clothing in his path? There seems to be something missing, especially when you compare it with all the pomp and splendor of the coronation of Charles III, which we witnessed just this past week. Europe, for example, sets the pace for the Western world in its understanding of coronations, and it has given us a long history of the pomp, glory, splendor, majesty, and the wealth of those events in which a king is inaugurated into his royal and regal status. Sometimes he was raised on a shield. Sometimes he was made to stand on a sacred stone. Sometimes he was presented with a spear or with a sword or with a scepter or given a crown or given a robe of great distinction to mark the inauguration into that official place of king. Traditionally in Europe, they even borrowed from the inauguration or coronation of David and Saul by adding some religious features. And they wanted to assign to the secular, um, to the secular king divine rights as kings, such as what we witnessed with Charles III. And therefore, they brought the alleged men of God, their bishops, or their priests, to affirm the sovereign right of a king. It was a grand and glorious occasion, usually followed by great feastings and banquets. There was and is splendor everywhere. Rich people in rich clothing, jewels, horses, carriages, archbishops, famous dignitaries, everywhere. Everything pointed to the glory of the individual being crowned his majesty, his military power, and might, and so forth. I do not know if you know it, but just as an indication of some of the faulty raw and the wealth that goes along with all of that, a crown was made for Queen Victoria in 1838. The crown was made all out of rubies and sapphires of monstrous proportions. In the middle of it was a 309-carat diamond, and the scepter which she took in her hand had a diamond on top of it of 516 and a half carats cut from the Star of Africa. Events of tremendous, almost inconceivable wealth, coronations were and are events of great splendor. But this is not like those coronations. A donkey's colt, a bunch of branches, and some old clothes. But then this is no ordinary king. He has no ordinary kingdom. Did he not say to Pilate, 
I am not like a king, like you think kings are. My kingdom is not of this cosmos or world. Now this is a very important event in these 11 verses because it initiates the last week of the life of our Lord prior to his crucifixion. It is the last drama. It is his last public act prior to being crucified, the last event of his ministry. And it has to be treated with a great amount of respect. And it has to be understood for what it really is, or you will not understand what comes after it. I really feel that the earthly coronation of Jesus Christ, sometimes called the triumphal entry, gets bypassed far too much. It is a very significant event, yet we have just turned it into a very nice little story, missing the significance of the event itself. I want you to understand the scene. Verse 1 tells us Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And it sets for us the setting. And when they draw near to Jerusalem and were come to Bethpage, unto the Mount of Olives. I'll stop here. As we begin to see the unfolding of this marvelous coronation, I want you to notice first the end of the pilgrimage. We will call point one the end of the pilgrimage. It is the end. Jerusalem was to be the end. He never ever leaves the vicinity of Jerusalem. This is it. He dies in the city. This is the end of 33 years. 30 years of obscurity and three plus years of ministry. It all ends here. This is the end of the pilgrimage. The goal of the Lord's life in ministry is about to be reached. But just to bring you right into this scene, the Lord a few weeks before had left Galilee. He had ministered throughout Galilee. He had ministered some in Judea, where Jerusalem was the major city, of course. But he had yet fully, re fully touched Perea, which was the region called the Beyond, which was east of Jordan. So in leaving Galilee this time, he went east of the Jordan and through the area known as Perea, and he did what he did everywhere. He taught, he healed, and he presented to them his credentials as a king. And as he came to the south, moving through Perea, he was moving directly toward Jerusalem at the same time, knowing it was Passover time, knowing it was time to come to the end of his pilgrimage, knowing it was time to get ready to die. And as he moved, he moved among pilgrims who also were going. And so a crowd collected as he came to the south. And finally, he crossed the Jordan back over to Judea. And he crossed at Jericho, went through the city of Jericho. There he embraced in his salvation a small man by the name of Zacchaeus, healed two blind men, one named Bartimus. And not only those three, perhaps, but even more than they had collected with him. And together, they moved up to Jerusalem. So it has been a few weeks since he left Galilee, ministered in Perea, 
came through Jericho, and now he ascends to Jerusalem. And it is only about 17 miles, but it is 3,000 feet in elevation. When it says he went up to Jerusalem, or when anyone went up to Jerusalem, they really went up from Jericho. By now, he has collected an entourage of people, and they are moving to that great event called Passover. Little do they know that he is the Passover lamb. At the same time, the city is literally teeming with humanity. Masses of people are there. There was a census 10 years after this event when there was a counting of the sacrificial lambs, and the count is somewhere around 260,000. Passover lambs that were slaughtered during that week 10 years later. And if that is the case, the Jewish law prescribed one lamb for 10 people. That means there could have been as many as 2.6 million people in the city. It would have been literally teeming with mobs of people. There could, the, Jesus was taking the primary moment in the history of Israel's calendar year for this great event when the city was swelled to its greatest population. It says in verse 1, when they drew near to Jerusalem, before he went into the city, he came to a place called Bethpage. Now, we do not know anything about this place. It was some kind of a hamlet somewhere near Bethany, because in verse 2, it says he sent two disciples saying, go into the village opposite you. And when he sent them, he was in Bethany. So it is somewhere near Bethany. Bethany is two miles east of Jerusalem, just on the other side of the valley Kedron the Mount of Olives, on the backside of the Mount of Olives. We do not know where Bethpage is, but it is in the district of the Mount of Olives. Bethany is there, and Jerusalem is just a two-mile walk from there. And so, Jesus arrives in Bethpage and then in Bethany. Now, John gives us an interesting note. John chapter 12, verse 1 states, Then Jesus... And this is at the same moment, six days before the Passover, six days before the Passover came to Bethany. So first to Bethpage, and then over to Bethany. Why Bethany? Where Lazarus was, who had been raised from the dead. That's why Bethany. Lazarus was there. And they made him supper. And Martha served, as she always does. You know, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. But before he goes into the city, he stops. And he goes to Bethany, because that was where his friends lived. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Dear friends, I suppose, from an earthly standpoint, with the exception of the apostles themselves, these were perhaps the three dearest people in Jesus' life. 
as he approaches the inevitable week of pain and death, he seeks out the comfort and the compassion and the care of his beloved friends. And Bethany becomes for him, for these six days, a resting place. He spends the time with his dear beloved friends. But even there, conflict is present. Because one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the bag. The hate for Jesus was relentless. Six days before the Passover, there was a supper in his honor, and he was anointed. And he was loved by everybody but one. And it must have been a warm and wonderful time. Six days before the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, the true sacrifice, the Lamb slain from the disruption of a cosmos, is to be offered six days from the nails, six days from the thorns, the spit, the cursings, the spear, the crown, the hatred, the bitterness, the sin offering, the loneliness of being alone on the cross, six days. That is all. The next day, John tells us in John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, that many Jews came to Bethany to see him. Many Jews. There was a great gathering about him. So much so that the leaders were very concerned as to how they might kill him. Because he was such a threat. So it seems as though when he arrives, there is some affirmation coming from Lazarus and Mary and Martha coming from the people. It looks good. Apart from Judas, it looks very good. And the coronation is near. And he knows that. And maybe we might say, Everything is really on schedule. He is being anointed. His friends are caring for him. Many people are moving out to see him who heard of his power in raising Lazarus from the dead, which he had already done. And everyone knew Lazarus, and that is how it all starts. Now let us go back to Matthew chapter 21. The first day he arrives there, he has supper. He is anointed. The next day, a multitude gathers to him. And probably on the next day, Jesus sent two disciples. It says in verse 1, and Jesus here initiates, he initiates his own coronation. He sets it in motion. He initiated everything. He controlled every element of his own ministry, every turn, every action was his to initiate. He dispatched two disciples. It does not tell us which two. On another occasion in Luke chapter 22, verse 8, when he sent out two, it was Peter and John. It may have been Peter and John here, but we do not know. And he said, go to the village. Verse 2, the village that's opposite you which would be Bethpage. And immediately you will find an ass tied in a colt with her. 
loose them and bring them unto me. He was about ready to go into the city. He was controlling everything. And let me tell you why. He wanted to demonstrate to the cosmos that he was no victim, that it was all under his control. And it was all within his own power. Every detail was worked out accurately. And he wanted to create a mass demonstration. He wanted the people to cry, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. He wanted them to cry out, that he was the Messiah because he wanted it in their very mouths that he had indeed proved himself to be who he was. He wanted them to speak the fact that there was no doubt about the credentials of Jesus the Christ. He wanted that whole mob, that whole national multitude to be crying out that this was and is the Messiah so that forever and always it could never be said that they really did not have enough information. They knew what he taught and they knew what he had done. And the climax of it all was the resurrection of Lazarus, whom they had known to be dead for four days. And out of their own mouths came their own affirmation that became for them either the statement of their true belief or the statement of their condemnation. Because they knew who he was. And he set the scene so their mouths would state it. The credentials were overwhelming. The proof was unanswerable. There's another reason that he created this mass demonstration. It would lead to either the acceptance or the anger of the Pharisees, which ultimately would lead them to desire his life, either in belief or unbelief, which would ultimately lead to his being sacrificed. They would either sacrifice him as Abraham did Isaac in a loving way, understanding that he indeed was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, or they would do it in unbelief in a most horrific manner possible to demonstrate what happens to those who have the audacity to try to challenge their authority. But either way, Jesus knew he was coming to die. The day he rode in was the day traditionally that the Jews selected their lamb for sacrifice. He offered himself on that day as the lamb for the whole cosmos. And he had set in motion so that by Passover day, he would die. Thus, Jesus took charge of all the events, 
creating the situation as he wanted to create it. He also did what he did here, sending the disciples to get these two animals to fulfill prophecy, as it says in verse 4. It was all done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. He was in control of everything. He was on a divine schedule. He initiated his own coronation. We begin then with the end of the pilgrimage, and we see him as he arrives at Jerusalem. Now, I want you to look at a second feature of this passage, and I like to call it the exactness of prophecy. He is going to be the king the prophets predicted. In the first eight verses of Zechariah chapter 9, there is a prophecy of a great ruler that will come. This great ruler is going to come, and there is going to be a salvation for Israel under him. I mean, he is really, really a great ruler. Talk about how he will deliver them from the Syrians and the Philistia and all their surrounding enemies, and he will save Israel. So basically, verse 1 to verse 8 becomes a prophecy and that prophecy is of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, who was a human conqueror. But after Alexander the Great, there will come a greater than he. In verse 9 is a contrast. Alexander is just used for comparison. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes unto thee. There is coming a king. Alexander in his military triumph, riding on his great white horse with all his entourage, flashing his sword in the sun with his great crown, signifying him as the conqueror of the world, the great military genius of Alexander, with all his entourage, had come to the rescue of Israel. But there is coming another king. He is righteous, and he comes with salvation. And then this seemingly inconceivable and contradictory statement, lowly and riding on an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Somebody says, what in the world is that? Nobody rides a donkey at a coronation. Donkeys used to have a place in the world until Solomon came along in the land of Palestine. And Solomon made the horse the animal of dignity and honor and war. And donkeys became nothing but stupid beasts of burden. And nobody rode a donkey. Certainly not at a coronation. But, says the prophet, your king will ride one. Now, let's go back to Matthew chapter 21. And it says, go into the village opposite you in verse 2. And immediately you are going to find that donkey and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. Go into that little village, Bethpage, located somewhere in the vicinity of the Mount of Olives, a 2,600-foot high ridge northeast of Jerusalem. 
just as you get into the village, you're going to find these two animals. How do you know that? Well, we could say he had supernatural knowledge and be right. But I kind of think he knew the folks that lived there. And he knew they had these animals because he knew that they would respond. He says, if they ask you anything, just tell them the Lord has need of it, and they will send the animals with you. He knew that these were believers. They would not withhold their animals from the Lord. And by the way, Mark 11, 2 tells us exactly where the two animals were found. And Mark and Luke both tell us that neither of them had ever been ridden. Is that important? Yes, because it was an honor for someone to ride an animal who had never been ridden. To ride a young animal that had never been ridden was as if to say, this animal has been saved for you. It was very special. Verse 4 states, all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. He is not a king like Alexander the Great. Not at all. He is not a foreign tyrant. He is Israel's own king. He is not cruel and oppressive. He is righteous and bringing salvation, says Zechary chapter 9, verse 9. Literally, the text says, showing himself a savior. The point is, he's a king unlike any other king. And he has a coronation unlike any other coronation. It is a strange coming by kingly standards, but he is declaring who he is in a very important way. The people wanted a military messiah. They wanted one who would come in and by great military power overthrow Rome. He was coming directly in a way that would show them that he was not interested in doing that. Had he come in on a white horse with a flashing sword in his hand, they would have known what he was coming to do. But riding on a donkey's colt, weaponless, meek and lowly, was different. Had he come with a legion of armed soldiers, it would have been one thing. But a whole bunch of pilgrims? Had he come with great wealth? But all he had thrown in front of him was tree branches and old garments and clothes. It is all very extraordinary. But you see, he deliberately arranged it all to fulfill prophecy, because prophecy was consistent with who he is. He did not come to make war with Rome. He came to make peace with God for men. He did not come into the world to make war with Rome on behalf of the Jews, but to make peace with God. He came as one offering peace. Riding the donkey represented all this. If you are really interested in how that played out, you can see our podcast titled He, Rolled, he Rode an Ass, where I discuss this in great detail. Verse 6 says, the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They did just what he told them to do. And they were not sure which one he was going to ride. 
So they put their clothes on both of them. Verse 7, they brought the ass and the colt and put on them their clothes and set him thereon. They probably took off their outer robe and put it on each animal so that he could sit on either one and have some material between himself and the sweat of the animal's back. Luke 19.35 says he took his seat on the colt with the help of the disciples. They even helped him up. And the mother would lead the colt along. So, he fulfills prophecy. I want you to see the epitome of praise. Verses 8 and 9 state, And a very great multitude spread their garment in the way. They threw their clothes down, creating a carpet for him. And I mean, this is a very great multitude. When it says that, it means it. Probably hundreds of thousands of people. Notice verse 9. And the multitudes that went before and that followed. Now that helps us understand the multitude. You see, you have got one massive multitude coming with Jesus to Jerusalem. They have been collected in Galilee, down through Perea. They have been collected as he crossed the Jordan through Jericho, up the hill to Bethany. He has been in Bethany. The crowd has swelled as people have come there to see him. And now that whole entourage is with him. They are surging toward the city. Out of the city comes this massive humanity that is already there. They has heard of him raising Lazarus from the dead. They hear he is coming. Like two great surging seas, they come together just outside the gate of Jerusalem. This massive humanity. And in the middle of it all, Jesus rides on a donkey's colt. The people have really disregarded their leaders. Because at the end of John chapter 9, we are told that the Pharisees warned the people that if they knew anything about him, they were to report him so that they could capture him and take him prisoner. They were certainly not to worship him or pay him homage or hail him, but they disregarded their orders. And their expectations for messianic deliverance were so great that the whole thing turned into a credible mob scene. It was just a total chaotic event from the standpoint of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. From their view, everything was out of hand. The people were going mad for this Jesus, throwing down their clothes. What did that mean? Well, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 13, you will see that they did that for Jehu when he was coronated. It is as if to say, I am under your feet. I take a place of submission to you. I throw myself at your feet. You may walk over me. And in that sense of humiliation, yes, I believe that this scene recalls that moment of Jehu's coronation. And the palm branches they threw down 
indicated in John 12 that they were signs of salvation, symbols of joy. They were waved at a time of great joy, a time of celebrating salvation. They are celebrating salvation. And there is great joy. There is excitement, eschatsy, as he comes in. They knew who he was. They knew what he had taught. They knew what he had done. They knew he could raise the dead. This multitude moves out, throws everything at his feet, and they cry out. Look what they cry. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save now. You can hear the chant, save now, save now. They are crying for salvation. But it is not soul salvation. It is military deliverance that they are after. They know what this event is. It is Passover. What does Passover celebrate for a Jew? Passover celebrates the deliverance from Egypt, how God delivered his people out of bondage, how God delivered them out of the captivity of Egypt. This is all on their minds. God is a saving, delivering God. God has delivered us from Egypt in the past, and we celebrate that. And now here, at the very time we celebrate our delivering God, comes a new deliverer to deliver us from Rome, to deliver us from the bondage of the present era. And the euphoria escalates, and it is indeed an odd pageant. A man on a donkey, without an army, without a weapon, and a mass of hundreds of thousands of people crushing around him, crying out, save now, deliver now. They wanted a material kingdom a physical kingdom, earthly deliverance. He comes with an entourage of rabble, poor common people crying out for deliverance. They know who he is. Hosanna to the son of David. Do you think they did not know what that meant? I'm telling you, they knew full well what the words they were saying meant. Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, we see there God promises David a son, the son of David, who will reign on an Ionian throne in an Ionian kingdom. They knew that this is a messianic title. They are crying out, deliver us, O Messiah. And they are putting in their own mouth the affirmation of the fact that his credentials are overwhelming. They even cry out from the Psalms, the Hallel, which are the praise Psalms, chapters 113 through chapter 118. And they say things out of the 118th Psalm, 
which was the conqueror's psalm, crying, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118, verse 26. This is our conqueror. The one coming in the name of the Lord is a messianic epitaph. They believe this is their Messiah. And by the way, they hailed the same psalm. It's Simon Maccabees a hundred years before when he had conquered Acre, that God had sent them a deliverer then. Now they see a deliverer. Only this deliverer is the son of David. This is the Messiah. But the credentials he has shown throughout his ministry he had convinced them with overwhelming conviction that he is indeed the Messiah. They just did not understand the nature of his Messiahship. They knew that he was the king. They just did not understand the nature of his kingdom. They sum it up at the end when they say, we will not have this man to, what? To reign over us. This is not the kind of a king we want. This is not the one we bargained for. And like people today and people in all times who want Jesus, but they want the Jesus of their own devising. They want the Jesus of their own invention. They want the Jesus who walks in and says, I am going to solve all your problem. I am going to deliver you from all your enemies. I am going to make life wonderful for you. Not the Jesus who haven't come in the city immediately takes a whip and cleans up their defiled temple. He did not come and overthrow Rome. He came and overthrew the temple. That was a terrible turning point. Instead of coming in and knocking off Rome, he came in and wiped out their temple. He was saying to them, you do not need Roman bondage broken. You need sin bondage broken. You do not need to solve your problem with Rome. You need to solve your problem with God. And that is why he came. He comes to offer men and women peace with God internally. They knew who he was. The credentials had convinced them of that. They said it. Save now, son of David. Hosanna, son of David. Blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord. And then they even said, Hosanna in the highest. Highest means the abode of God. Glory to God, they were saying. Praise to God who has sent his special emissary, the one coming from God, who is the Messiah, our deliverer. Deliver us. So they hailed their conquering king, and they use all the right verbiage, and they were filled with anticipation. But in the end, I argue that there is nothing humble whatsoever about this entire episode. This is because what Jesus is attempting to do is none other than make a claim to the throne of Israel, the throne of David. And he does it without saying a word. Remember, 
Jesus set up this whole event, he knew he would be traveling westward from the Mount of Olives in the east, down through the Kidron Valley, and back up into Jerusalem. Instead of simply walking this relatively short distance, he instructed his disciples to go into the city, get the donkey, and bring it to him. So essentially, Jesus is choreographing a ride from the east down through the Kidron Valley and up into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And while this may seem like something very humble to us, this was no such thing in ancient Israel. In fact, it was quite the opposite. As we saw in our podcast titled, He Rode an Ass, riding a donkey was what ancient Mideastern rulers would do to show they were coming in peace, not to wage war. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33, we have King David himself giving instructions to his court prophet, Nathan, regarding how to inaugurate his son, Solomon, as king after him. Take with you the servants of your Lord, and he have my son Solomon ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gahan. Keep in mind that Gahan Spring is in the Kidron Valley, in between the Mount of Olives to the east and Jerusalem to the west. 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 34 and 35 continues. There let the priest Zadok and the prophet Nathan anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall go up following him. Let him enter and sit on my throne, and he shall be king in my place. For I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. That is the coronation ceremony of King Solomon. Note that it takes place in the Kidron Valley at the Gahan Spring between the Jerusalem Temple and the Mount of Olives. Note also that the king rides on the back of David's own royal mule, and that the people rejoice and shout praises as they all march up the hill from the east to the west and to Jerusalem. Does that sound familiar? Far from being humble, Jesus is orchestrating a reenactment of the ancient Israelite coronation ceremony of the kings of Israel. From atop the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem, he instructs his disciples to go and get a donkey. Remember, he told the disciples to go and get the donkey. They were confused, but he said, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say this, the Lord needs it and will send it back here immediately. That's Mark eleven three, As if it were all arranged. They bring the donkey to him and he sits on it and then proceeds down into the Kidron Valley, past the Gehan Spring, and then back up into Jerusalem while people are rejoicing and shouting praises to the king. How did the people even know to be there? John chapter 12, verses 12 and 13 state, The great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Again, clearly because someone had told them in advance that Jesus was coming. Jesus and his disciples arranged this entire episode to portray Jesus 
as the coming king. Everyone at the time, especially Jesus, was familiar with the royal custom of anointing Israel's kings in the Kidron Valley at the Gahan Spring on a royal steed such as a mule, donkey, or horse, as recorded in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 33 and 35. And they were fully aware of the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, celebrating the return of a bruised but triumphant king to Jerusalem after battle riding on that same royal steed. Many Jews of that time expected a king, a Messiah to return and deliver them from the Romans. But in this episode, recorded in all four Gospels, Jesus is reenacting the Jewish equivalent of progressing to Buckingham Palace. Well, it is an unusual coronation, is it not? They would not accept him on his own terms. So by the end of the week, they cried for his blood and killed him. Just unimaginable. The world is still like that. People are open to the Jesus they want, the Jesus of their own definition, if he gives them what they want, health, wealth, and happiness. Instead, instant healing. Whatever it is that they demand, that is what they want. But as soon as he confronts the sinfulness of sin, and seeks to turn the heart toward God in true salvation, they curse him. That is not the Jesus they want. That is not the king they want. Well, I confess to you that after studying through all of this, I thought to myself, this is a kind of sad coronation for the greatest king of the universe. It does not seem fitting that this is all the coronation he will have. And so, as I studied through my Bible, I came to the book of Revelation chapter 5. And I would like to give you a little bit of a glimpse of some little tiny aspect of the real heavenly coronation. The Lamb takes the scroll in Revelation 5, 8. And says, the four living creatures, the four and twenty elders, fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the scrolls and to open its seals. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed a God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God a kingdom of priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying, with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature that is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb 
for the eon of the eon. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that lives from eon and the eon. Now that is a coronation. And that is just a little brief snippet we get on his final coronation. But the cosmos must understand that the first time he came, he came as a suffering servant to provide men salvation. The second time he comes, he comes as a conquering king, riding a horse, waging war against his enemies, and to show men his majesty. And unless you see him as the suffering servant, you will never know him in his majestic glory. The crowd would not take him on his terms. This account closes with what I call the element of perplexity. And it is a good place for us to conclude. In Matthew chapter 21, verses 10 and 11, it is a good insight into mob psychology. And he went, when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, literally shaken. The verb means to be shaken. Saying, who is this? Is not that interesting? It fascinates me. It is like the guy at the party who is just having a time of his life saying, Hey, what are we celebrating? This is a great party. What are we celebrating? The crowd is just moved, swept up. The whole mood of the mob is sweeping through, and people are caught up in the whole deal, and they say, Who is this Messiah? Who are we hailing? Who is it? And they are perplexed. Even the disciples were perplexed. In John chapter 12, verse 16, we read, The disciples did not understand what was going on until after Jesus was glorified. It was not until he went to heaven and sent a brand new apostle to a different group of people that they got the picture. This apostle to the Gentiles into a living, breathing entity, not a nation, would be able to define and declare and to present what it is that Jesus Christ had accomplished. They did not get the picture at the time it was happening. They did not even understand the cross till the Apostle Paul explained it to them. If the 12 apostles and his closest disciples were confused, you can imagine how confused the rest of the crowd was. They were hailing him as a king, but they really did not know who he was. They were hailing Jesus from the village of Nazareth in the region of Galilee, who was a prophet. And they had affirmed that on many occasions as the one who was the son of David, who was coming from the Lord to bring deliverance. They knew who he was. 
Do you know who he is? You see, the problem for them was they knew who he was, and they saw his power, and they heard his words, but they did not want his kingdom on his terms. They were so earthbound, so materialistic, so physical, if you will, that all they wanted was whatever was for this moment in this life. They were not interested in a spiritual kingdom. They did not care to be confronted about their sins. And when that came about, they cursed him. Some of them here were led by the euphoria of well-meaning mob members, if you will, or crowd members, are later led by the evil-intended Pharisees who screamed for his blood. And they know little more about him than they do here. They just chime in. That is how it is with Jesus. He offers himself as a king, and there are very few who understand. They embrace him as the king that he truly is, the king of peace who brings salvation and makes men right with God. And then there is a group of people who understand who he is, and they see all his credentials, but they are looking for external stuff. They want the materialistic kingdom, health, wealth, happiness, here now, give it to me fast. And they are not willing to face the reality of their sinfulness and emptiness and estrangement from God. And so they curse him when he confronts that. Then there is the rabble that just get caught up in the sweep and can go either way. How is it with you? Good day, and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast. Thank you.